You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. If we were to end with the first session, and not coming back for the second brief time, I'd love to know what would linger as you walk out the door from what you've heard so far. What has, um, what has the Spirit said to you? What thoughts are within you? What, um, what is happening in you as you think about the fact that, that we're alive in a way that none of us realizes and that in a small group we can do certain things in that setting that cannot be done in any other setting that can stir that life. That life can be stirred marvelously during worship, can be stirred during a silent retreat. When you get to know the Lord, I was with Brendan Manning a while ago, I know most of you know him as well, and Ben and I were preaching together at a Southern Baptist Pastors Conference. A priest and a psychologist speaking to Southern Baptist Pastors. <laughs> One of the pastors came to Brendan afterward and said, can I ask you a question, why are, why are you a Catholic? And Brennan said, are you asking why I believe that good works get you to heaven? And the pastor said, well, yes, that's what I'm asking. And Brennan's response was, well, you know, the good works thing, that's just too hard. I'm taking the easy way. <laughs> I'm going to get there by grace. Um, but Brennan and I were chatting before we left, and I asked him where he was going after the conference. And he said he was going on a seven-day retreat. An instrumental Western pragmatist that I am, I said to him, tell me why you do that. Tell me how you're different because you go on these silent retreats. That's what I asked him. And Brennan looked puzzled. I thought it was a good question. He looked puzzled and he went, well, I've never, never thought of that. You never thought of it? I didn't say that, but I, I just went, oh, you know, but internally, you never thought of it? Um, and then, what do you do it for? <laughs> and and um, he said, um, he just looked very casual, and he said, well, I just figure God likes it when I show up. That was a paradigm shift for me. Um, I went away from that with that on my mind. That when you spend time with God, he, he really gets all excited about that. And something inside of us stirs, so that... that Life within us stirs through worship and time with him and corporate worship and music and the preaching of the word and, and in ministry and giving and sacrificing. The life is stirred. But it's stirred in a unique way in a group. And that's the whole point I was, that's my big point of the first hour. That's the vision. How can we stir that life up in each of us? And I just want to ask you what, what your minds are doing as we come to a little, to the two-thirds point. Anybody respond? Anybody Anybody's mind doing something? Anything at all? <laughs> Tell me what you're thinking. What are you going to walk out the door saying? I see a couple of hands in the bag. Two lovely ladies. Yes, ma'am. We're excited. 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 Filled with hope. Wonderful. And Welcome back. Yeah. Mm, thank you. In the back, sir. God matters. God matters. 
How awful that that's a new thought for so many. Thank you. Yeah? It's not about me. It's not about me. I wonder if you realize how radical that is. At the uh, four years ago at the ACC conference, another four or 5,000 people there then, and my memory serves right, there was a marriage and family therapist, a, a, an unbelieving woman, a secular woman, who came because she saw a conference on Christian counseling, which to her meant a complete oxymoron. How would he put the word Christian, bigotry, hatred, legalism, in front of the word counseling? And so she came, and the first person she heard was Johnny Erickson Tata. And she wrote a letter, we corresponded a bit afterward, and uh, in her letter she um, wrote an article actually for a secular journal in Marriage and Family. I think it's in that article that I read this, I wish I had it with me, I don't. She said, um, in a long, about three-page article, she said, I've been in therapy for ten years. Is there nothing more to think about than me? And after hearing Johnny Erickson Tata, she said, I think there is. That's something. God matters, not about me. It makes sense that if we want to create a, like a compelling counterculture, like you're talking about, that it would be not a quick fix, that it would be a journey, it would be gradual. But that's, kind of, that's definitely counterculture. Yes, yes. Not a quick fix. Yeah. I'm feeling convicted about how little uh, I really want Jesus to be formed in me. Ah. Can I take off on that? Daniel said that he's a little convicted, that uh, how, how little he thinks about or senses the desire of the Spirit within him to want Jesus to be formed within him. Is that a fair summary of what you said? One of the things in our school of spiritual direction that I talk about a fair amount is that the evangelical church and Western evangelical, Western evangelical church, at least, it seems to me, has been, has been cursed with aspiring toward good enough Christianity. And I believe we come to church often and to small groups, and to worship experiences, and to conferences, we, we come with, without any sense of desperate desire because we're good enough Christians. A lot of people in this room are not watching pornography. A lot of people in this room have their time in, this, in the Word every day. A lot of people in this room don't miss church. A lot of people in this room really have decent marriages. A lot of people in this room have kids that are doing pretty fine, and are reasonably healthy, and have some money. Hey, that's, that's life. Can you hear Jesus looking at his father before he died and said, Oh, Father, they don't get it. This is life that the pension fund doesn't suffer with the stock market. This is life that my spouse treats me a certain way. What do you say? This is life that they might know you and me. <laughs> life is knowing God. That's, that's, that's really radical. And the idea of actually having Christ formed in me. Um, sweet thought. Yep, I'm all for it. I'll tell you one more quick story. I was here in Texas six years ago when our granddaughter was born. And I was in a Barnes & Noble about 5 o'clock in the afternoon heading to a Bible study that night led by my good friend Dwight Edwards, whose book is on the table, Revolution Within, which I'll be mentioning a little later. And I had my Bible with me at Barnes & Noble, and I was sitting there reading my Bible, having my latte, and in comes a young mother with three kids, one a newborn, and I just was having my, my, my baby granddaughter just been born, so babies really um, were compelling to me. So I was staring at this little kid, you know, just... 
and the mother discerned because I had my Bible that maybe it was a wholesome stare. And um, <laughs> she, she came over and she said, uh, she said, I notice you're noticing. And I said, well, I'm a new grandfather, you know. Oh, yeah. And we laughed and talked and, and had a good little time. And, and then she's friendly and she put out her hand and said, well, hi, I'm whatever her name was. And so I had to respond. And I said, hi, I'm Larry Crabb. And she went, do you know you have the same name as a man who writes books? And I was so tempted. Oh, really? You know. And before I could say it, she said, you're him. You know, and I was like, and, and she, we chatted a bit and she walked away. And there was a guy eavesdropping, an A&M professor, it turned out, that was eavesdropping the whole time. And after the, other one, the woman left, a man came over and he said, I couldn't help but over here. You write Christian books? What, what's that all about? I heard you say you're a Christian psychologist, Christian psychology. And so I chatted with this guy and uh, told him about the book Connecting, which I had just written at the time, and, and talked about how God has worked in our son's life in just marvelous ways and told him some rich stories about God's work in our family and, and um, how it's all because of the grace of God because Jesus died and kind of woven the gospel, you know. And, and this A&M professor just leaned forward and he said, that's beautiful. <laughs> and what he meant was, it's not true. But it's beautiful. Christ formed in you. That's beautiful. Oh, no. No, no. It's compelling. It's true. And in small groups, we can move an inch at a time in that direction. One or two more quick thoughts. Anybody else that you want to share? What you're going to be lingering with? Yes, ma'am. feel better, happier, closer when you're with your, the people in your small group. And studying that fellowship, it seems to me everything's there. It's not good enough for... Hmm. And I would suppose that there's a fair number, I'm not sure how many actually, but a fair number that would say exactly what you've said, that it really is a good experience. And I praise God for that. Good fellowship and good folks and good study. But I hope you're hearing my central thought at the very center to measure it by is not whether it's a good time, although it's wonderful it is, not whether if you learn the scripture, although of course that's crucial, but what really matters is, is Christ formed? And, and that just becomes very amorphous and nebulous. So how do you know? What's it look like? Is that just a sweet thought? Or what's it all about? By the time we leave here in half an hour, um, I don't say this for any humor or I don't say it lightly, that, that I presume that we'll uh, hopefully have more questions than we had when we came in. Um, I don't have formulas. Um, I have a mystery to enter more than a plan to follow. Um, and I don't want there to be a mood of getting into your small group and doing it the way some alleged expert instructs you. I don't think that's a good thing. Um, well, with all that, let me um, move from a vision to, the, to a process not a formula, but to a process, and ask, how, how do we do this? How do we get together to stir up the supernatural passion that divine power has put in us? How do we get together so that after a year of being in my small group, after another year of being in my small group, that when the same thing happens again at midnight, and Rachel says the speed limit is 35, and I can feel something rising in me that's negative, that I'll feel another animation within 
And I'll tune into it because I want to. And I'll sense that there's another energy within me that's stronger than whatever irritability and impatience might be there. And whatever way I justify my irritability, I will recognize as vile. And I will be broken before God in that moment in the car, in three seconds' time. And out of me will come the perfume of Jesus as opposed to the vileness of my flesh. Could that happen because of the small group that I'm a part of in the next year? Could that be a measure of Christ being formed in me? Could a measure of Christ being formed in me that I'll be less concerned with externals, less judgmental about externals, um, more loving? I, I don't know if there's too many people as critical as I. Um, all of my training has taught me to discern what's wrong with all of you. Um, I make a living off it, you know? So I'm kind of grateful, I guess. Um, but what would it mean for me to spend time with people that don't think like I do and really love them? What would it mean for me to go to a monastery that I went to several months ago and watched 20 or 30 priests, monks, go through their liturgy? What would it mean for me not to feel superior? Because I'm reformed. What would it mean for me not to feel superior because I've never done that. Sorry, you have. What would Christ being formed in me look like? Where I become God-obsessed. More God-obsessed and less self-obsessed. How do we do it? Well, I want to give you a couple thoughts. And they're just thoughts. First thought is this. Start with a vision that leads to a covenant. Start with a vision that leads to a covenant. If you're not intentional about this, you're not aiming toward it, you're not maximizing the opportunity. The question needs to be asked in your small group, is this what you want? Or are you going to be satisfied five years from now in the same small group that you've gone through Galatians, Romans, and 1 Samuel, and some of the minor prophets? You've invited some other people into your group, and you've led a few people to Christ, and, and you had some good outreach, and you've really had some good times, and you've heard some stories, and you've gotten to know each other. Are you going to be satisfied with that? Or are you saying, is, there, is my interior world becoming more like the interior world of Jesus? That's how Eugene Peterson defines spiritual formation. That our interior world, not our exterior world, that comes from the interior world changing, that our interior world becomes more like the interior world of Jesus. Why is that so confusing to most Christians? Because we don't know what the interior world of Jesus was like. We just look at the things he did do and didn't do. We look at obedience as doing his Father's will, which means do this and that and don't do that and do the other, as opposed to what was his attitude? How did he feel when he said to his three special friends, guys, I'm really hurting. Could you hang out with me for a while? And the three guys fell asleep. What happened inside of him? I know what happens inside of me. Poor Rachel has to endure it. Can you believe I was with that person for two hours? They didn't ask me one question about me. And I asked them 37 questions. I kept track. We were in Canada yesterday in Toronto, and a guy... Kind of a big guy come up and we got, he said, Larry, nice to meet you. And hey, good to meet you. And we chatted for about 15 minutes. And 15 minutes, he just started telling me his life story. 
And after 50 minutes, he said, boy, he said, I didn't expect a dog like this. You're, you're pretty good at this, aren't you? <laughs> Felt like saying it'll be 130, you know. <laughs> you know the thought that went through me? I wish somebody would sit and listen to me for 15 minutes. Did Jesus feel like that? I don't think so. His three friends fell asleep. What did he do? You turkeys. No. He said, you know, you, you guys had a problem with the flesh. Uh, the, the flesh is willing, in terms of your, there's a, the, your, your spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It, you know, it just has some natural things that go against being good friends. And have you let me down? Yeah, but that isn't the point. I'm really concerned about you. And, and I'll tell you what I'm going to do now. I'm going to go die for you now. And my thought is, see if I spend time with you anymore. I'd love my interior world to become like the interior world of Jesus. Can you help me in my small group? Get a vision for it. And then what I suggest you do, and I know this is a little extreme and radical and might not be commonly done, but if, if, if somebody in the group, the leader perhaps, or the group as a whole, thinks about spiritual formation and thinks about that as as the reason why we're gathering, whatever else we do, it all funnels into that as the center, then could, could somebody in your group write up a covenant? In our group, we have a covenant, a two-page covenant that I actually wrote, and we as a group discussed and refined, and we all signed and dated. And, and, and then the, the covenant, you know, pledges confidentiality and, and says that here is the real purpose by which we're, for which we're coming to the group, and, and our, our commitment is to be other-centered, our commitment is to be here for each other and, and our spiritual journeys, and, and we believe in the new covenant. It, it means that there really is a, a heart within the believer that's wonderful and good. There's a lot of junk, but the core is beautiful by God's grace, and if we can access that and touch that, that maybe we can be released into becoming more like Jesus. And we wrote this two-page covenant, and, and agreed that we're in this thing for the long haul. And there's a lot of ways to do groups, I know, and I'm hardly suggesting anything that I w- intend to be normative, but, but I do think if you're going to think about a spiritual formation group, that you might want to consider making it a non-time-limited group. I think there's appropriate time limits to groups. We're going to do a, a book study on Galatians for 10 weeks. I think that's great. You're going to do a six-week study on whatever. That's fine. I'm not arguing against that. But I hope you're in a couple of relationships, besides your marriage, a couple of relationships where you're in this indefinitely. In our small group, we've, we kind of expect to be in the group together till we die. Now, maybe we'll have a split. It's happened before. Um, who knows what will happen? We don't know. But aim high. And when you get this illusion, go back and aim high again. The Christian journey is one of failure that detaches you from demand for success so you can abandon yourself more to God. That's the Christian journey. And my suggestion is that if you get a vision with a covenant, that you might want to consider making the covenant uh, indefinite in terms of time. That's my first thought. Second thought, build on a common foundation, a common theology of the journey. A lot of groups get together without any discussion of what the spiritual journey is like. What is this thing called a spiritual journey? I came to Christ when I was eight years old, so I've been journeying now as a, on my spiritual journey for 51 years, and I believe it's only in the last couple of years that I'm getting a glimmering what the journey's all about. Start thinking about the journey. When I think about the journey, I, in our school of spiritual direction, that's the, one of the major topics that we think about. And when I think about it, I think about it in terms of the detachment attachment process, where God weaves circumstances into our lives so that we get detached 
from everything as the center except him. That might be suffering. That might be a sense of spiritual deadness within you. It might be a lot of things that God allows. But whatever comes, it's a detaching process that he's detaching us from everything but himself. And another writer, Peter Kraft, calls it the Ecclesiastes experience, where you go through a point where life is just, what's the point? Don't, don't diagnose that as a psychological disorder. That's probably part of your spiritual journey. Don't solve it. Move through it. Into what Peter Kraft says is the next part of the spiritual journey, the Job experience. This guy's not a cheery fella. As you get empty and realize that, you know, the core of my soul is not satisfied. There's something that's just not alive. I'm not able to be marvelously gracious and loving and patient with these things that go on. I just get irritable and, and, and the, the core of me is not full of God's love. What's going on? Well, let me tell you, it's full of something. The core of you is full of something. Core of you, just like me, can be full of a demand for affirmation, a demand for respect, a demand for nurture, a demand for attention, a demand for recognition, a demand for healing of the wounds you have from your childhood, a demand for somebody to be aware of your sexual abuse and to have it changed, a demand for all these kind of things. That's the core. Come on, community. Come through for me. Huh, you didn't. I'll change churches. As opposed to, maybe that's part of the Ecclesiastes experience that I'm just empty. Must mean I'm not in line with God. And then suffering comes into your life in different forms, Job experience, and you begin to realize your fist is clenched in the face of God. No wonder you're not getting along. You don't clench your fist in his face. And the Job experience exposes the clenched fist, and then you move from there to the Song of Solomon experience. And you start realizing, I'm his beloved. He's looking at me and getting all excited. My goodness, that's grace. Spiritual journey. And so you realize that when you're journeying with people, they're going to go through a mess. They're going to be hard to be with. They're going to be annoying. They're going to drive you nuts. You're going to want to change small groups. All that's going to happen. Well, that's the journey. Hang in there. Get a common foundation. Let me give you two points on what I think a common foundation of the theology of the journey might be after my rambling thoughts about it. But two thoughts I want to share briefly. One is, I think it's crucial to regain what the church, I believe, is recovering slowly in Western culture. And I know, I know this church is strong on so many things, this, this point included, that the new covenant is very different than the old. Get a hold of the new covenant. It's what Paul got so excited about. That isn't just a fancy theological term. It, it's huge. And the new covenant is more than, it's not Sinai, it's Zion. The new covenant is more than, it's not rules, it's grace. The new covenant is more than stuff that drips off our lips so easily. The new covenant is, 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 is something about the freedom to release what's deepest within me because God has changed my heart. The new covenant is to release what's deepest within me, not because you treated me so well, but because I want to give God the glory. And in this situation, which is hurting me so bad, the hurt and the pain that I feel is not going to control me. There's something deeper in me that when the Spirit is alive within me, which He is, and I don't grieve Him and quench Him, that He actually starts coming out. And I bring God glory in the middle of the situation. And you may or may not respond, but God gets a glory, and my soul is full of joy in the middle of my sorrow. Get a book by Dwight Edwards on the table in the back called Revolution Within, to me, it's about the best primer, kind of a quick, um, not, not incomplete and not, not simplistic, but a, but a simple description of New Covenant theology, which I think is crucial for Christians who are gathering together to, form, to see, form Christ in each other. 
to understand, and I think it's just a marvelous introduction, and I would suggest that every small group spend about two or three weeks minimum studying the book. There's a workbook that goes along with it. Maybe more time would be good. But that's one thing I'd suggest under point two, a common foundation. The second thing I'd suggest under this common foundation and a theology of the journey is realize that the opportunity the small group presents for sanctification, for spiritual formation, for your interior world becoming more like Jesus, the opportunity that is uniquely presented to small group that produces deep change is this. To look bad in the presence of love. As opposed to looking bad in the presence of advice. Or looking bad in the presence of reproach. But to look bad in the presence of love. See, that's what the blood does. Do I believe that at the moment I was feeling irritable with my wife for doing nothing wrong? That at that moment, was God singing over me with delight? On what basis? Because I'm so terrific? No, because Christ is so covering. That's amazing. See, that's a miracle. Look bad in the presence of love. Let me tell you, if if you take what I'm talking about seriously tonight, and you get into this journey stuff, you'll be challenged. So often you use Bible study and prayer times and outreach and good times to stay, stay away from the guts of relationships where you drive each other nuts. One of my favorite passages is Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, where a woman named Madame Koklikov, an elegant socialite woman, came to Father Zosima, the elderly wise priest, and she gushed with all of her finery, and she came to him and said, Oh, Father Zosima, would you believe it? Sometimes I think of giving up all of my wealth and joining the Sisters of Mercy so I can care for the little people. And Zosima just looked at her quietly and said two things I think are really profound. One, he said, after being quiet for a bit, he said, you know, I was talking to a physician the other day, Madame Kotlikov, and he said to me, you know, the more I love people in general, the less I love people in particular. I'm not mad at any of you people. I don't know you. Get involved in a small group, and we'll drive each other nuts. Opportunity for grace, to look bad in the presence of love. And then Zosima looked at Madame Koklikov, and his second sentence was this. He said, Madam, please realize this. Love in action is a dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Get involved in a small group, and you'll find yourself dependent on grace to move toward another, who over time is just not somebody you want to be with that night. I've come to our small group a number of times in a really bad mood, really low, and just wondering, will this be the night that they finally get sick of me? Maybe I ought to just posture tonight. How you doing, Larry? Uh, it's all right. Don't, you know, God. <laughs> Building a common foundation, a theology of the journey, new covenant theology, and that the power you bring to the journey is that you can look bad in the presence of love. Third thing I'd suggest is develop flexible structure and a stumbling process. 
Let me just give you a couple things that we do in our group, and I don't think this needs to be normative, but there are some principles here that you might want to consider in your small group. One of the very simple little structural things that we do is we don't eat before the group. We eat after the group. We meet Sundays at 5, once a month, 5 to 7.30, then we eat. And that's very intentional for this reason, that we're four couples, we enjoy each other, we love each other, we um, get along generally. A couple of people aren't treating me the way they should, but it's it's really okay. Um, (laughs) But I'm God-obsessed, so I'm not going to hold it against him. Um, But we... um, we meet at 5 and then we you know, until 7.30. The reason for that is that because we do uh, enjoy chatting and we meet kind of formally once a month, we see each other other times as well sometimes, but there's a lot to catch up on. And we know that, um, you know, Wes climbed a 14,000 mountain a week or two ago. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine people right mind would do that, but um, <laughs> pastoral staff did that today, as I understand. Yeah. Um, and I'd like, to, I'd like to hear about that. And it's just so tempting when we get together. Wes, what was it like? And we enjoy that. And other people will say, well, Rachel and I, you've been here. and Tell us about it. And can I tell you, it's so easy to come together for the purpose of spiritual formation and to generate into pleasant sociability. Now, there's a time for pleasant sociability, of course. But if you're coming together to think hard about how to stir up what God has lavishly poured in each of you, and because you believe that it's there, and you're there to think hard about how to do that, starting with a meal sometimes just gets you off focus. And it's hard to get back. And your small group can become kind of a supper club. And if that's what you want, that's fine, but that's not what we're talking about. Have that too, but don't call it a spiritual formation group. So we don't eat first. Um... We think it's important that the group take the group seriously and that group meetings are not something you make if you can. And so we schedule it out months in advance and, and um, we're going to be there unless obviously things can happen. But, but we, we put it in our schedule. I mean, I, I can tell you that, you know, next February I'm going to be in Boston at a particular speaking engagement. Well, I'll be there. It's on the calendar. Well, so is my group time. As opposed to yeah, I think I can make it. No, no, th- this is a priority. You've got to look at it that way. So if you come together and eat second as a priority, what do you do? I don't know. Let's close in prayer. A <laughs> couple thoughts. I think it's crucial when the group get together that, that you literally move into the realm of the spirit and you, you don't do it religiously. Religion is the bane of the church. Peterson, in his introduction to Amos, has a great line in the message. He says that religion is the most dangerous energy source known to humankind. Because religion is really the effort to please God by your own goodness and to make it happen. And uh, So you can try and you get pious and pretentious as opposed to who you really are. But if who you really are if who you authentically are, big word in our postmodern circles, if who, you are, if who you authentically are is possessed by God, then authenticity matters more than vulnerability. 
and the focus is less on my struggles and my problems and more on the reality of spiritual power within me, that's authentic. And so what we often do, not every time, but often we begin our meeting when we get together at five and say, how are you doing? Pour the iced tea, get the cup of coffee, sit down, chat for a few minutes. But within a few minutes we sit and most often we begin with the Lexio Divina. It's our way of saying what is really in our hearts is the spirit. And he speaks through his word, Lexio Divina. Some of you know what it is, some of you don't know what it is. It's a sacred reading is all it means in the technical thing, the actual language. It's an old, old tradition, really, that you can do it in a thousand different ways. The simplest way, we don't try to make it elegant. We just, um, somebody picks a passage, usually a short narrative passage in the Gospels, and we all close our eyes, and somebody reads the passage, and we try to visualize the passage and try to listen to the Spirit as to what, uh, what is impressing us in the passage. Where is our mind going? What is stirring within us? And after we hear the passage read, we sit there quietly for 20, 30 seconds, and then we just share whatever was stirring. Then we read a second time, we read a third time, and do the same thing. It takes about 15 minutes. And by the time our 15 minutes is up, we're kind of in touch with the fact that the core of our souls is not sociable, it's spiritual. And the core of our souls is spiritually sociable, meaning trinitarianly sociable. That we're here to relate, fancy word, paracratically. I won't go into that. Just to, We're here to relate the way the Trinity relates to each other. We're here to, to move toward each other in a way that animates the other toward the things of God. That's what we're here for. And Alexio gets us in that kind of a mood. So within 15 minutes, that's where we are. And then what we do after that, and again, our structure's all over the place. We don't do it formally, and I don't give this as the, the way to do it. But oftentimes, somebody will just um, share. And let me tell you what happens when people get away from Bible study and away from prayer time and away from sociable time and get into sharing. Let me tell you what happens when people share. Do you all know what I want to say? What does everybody else feel? What's stirring inside of the other six, seven, eight people that somebody shares, somebody tells their story? Well, first thing we all feel is inadequate. I don't know what to do. I said it as a joke before, but I really mean it that I mean I got a PhD, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I can't tell you how often I've been sitting with people and said this person needs professional help. We all feel inadequate. We don't know what to do. And when you don't know what to do, what you don't do, when you don't know what to do, is enter the mystery of somebody's soul. Rather than entering the mystery, you manage the problem. So when someone shares a story, in my inadequacy, I want to do something. And I believe my mind when I'm wanting to make it better and wanting to help. It looks so wonderful. I believe my mind is set on the sinful nature at that point. And it's doing what my evil nature desires. Trying to prove my competence. Trying to be important to somebody. Trying to be the one that says something that the person says, oh, that was helpful. Trying to quell my fears by coming up with advice that helps somebody else. So maybe when I'm in trouble, I'll get my problem fixed too. So let me suggest when someone tells their story, resist like the plague, affirmation. Resist it. It short circuits the story. Talking to a close friend two weeks ago, I've had kind of a dark spell the last month, and this friend has a dark spell too, and he thought his was darker than mine, so he wanted my time. 
and I wanted his. They're competing for darkness. And, and he said, Larry, how you doing? I said, it's been a dark time. Sometimes I just feel like dumping the whole thing and just playing golf. If I were any good at it, I probably would. <laughs> what he said? Oh, Larry, that's what I love about you. You're so transparent. You just, you just wrestle with things the way they really are. And boy, something always good comes out of it. This is so exciting. Thanks a lot. Appreciate that. I don't want to say anything else to him. He was affirming me out of my misery. He wasn't joining me in my life. Don't affirm too quickly. Is there a place for affirmation? Of course. But we affirm quickly because we're scared to get involved in the person's soul. Don't affirm so quickly. Don't empathize. Empathize. Oh. Don't you hate it when you tell somebody you're hurting and they put their face right up to yours and say, that sounds really hard. It really is hard. Oh my, I'll bet that's so tough. It really is tough. I mean, where do you go with that? I, I studied the Gospels preparation for this last book, Soul Talk, looking for where the Lord was empathic. I couldn't find a place where he was empathic the way we define the term today. Peter, Lord, I don't think the cross is all that essential. Peter, sounds like you're really wrestling with your theology here. You feel troubled to me, Peter. What's happening in your soul? What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. I mean, you're Peter. What? Lord, shouldn't you take a course in counseling or something? Em- empathy is also an excuse for not entering, oftentimes. I don't want to overstate. I mean, there's times, of course, you just give a person a big hug and say, I'm so sorry, this hurts so bad. I- I'm not knocking that as a whole concept, but so often it just gets in the way of soul talk. And souls connecting. And the third thing, the most lethal of all, I suggest you don't do it. Don't advise. Don't try to fix it. Join somebody on their journey into the presence of God. Don't fix their problems so life works better. And again, that can be overstated. If you see me with a flat tire, don't. Larry, how are you doing spiritually right now? You know, just call AAA and help me out for crying out loud. Solve my problem. I mean, there's a place for that, but when you're sharing the journey, just just get involved with the person and and um, let me say one more thing and we'll stop. It's two minutes till nine. When you listen to people tell their stories, what we sometimes do in our group is. As we simply express curiosity, sometimes for up to an hour, as people chant for an hour, telling their story. Then we go off to different parts of the room for 15 minutes, and we listen to the Spirit on behalf of the other, and we say, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we lift this person into your presence, what do we hear you saying about them? And we, we spend 15 minutes sometimes doing that, and we come back, and we just share whatever we think we heard. We don't speak with the authority of God. We simply speak what we think we've heard. So I'd summarize it this way. Don't affirm, empathize, or advise. Rather, be curious about the journey. Listen to the Spirit. And then pour what's alive in you 
into the other. What's alive in you? A lot of times, things have held alive in me that I didn't want to say it, didn't seem too smart, didn't seem too sensitive, didn't seem too whatever, so I didn't say it. What's alive in me that, that, that feels clean, that feels loving, that is consistent with Scripture as I know it, that seems sensitive to where the person is? What's alive in me? Am I willing to offer that? We're so afraid to offer what is deeply alive in each other. I'm going to, as we close, I'm just going to ask the most of the members of our small group are here tonight. Would you stand, members of my small group? There's Judy and there's my wife and back is Tom and there's Bob and Claudia somewhere. And these are the group that we're traveling with. Claudia's holding a baby out in the back there. Thank you guys. This is the group that we're traveling with and and um, I hope you listened tonight and got it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> no, they get it really well. And, and that's not true. We're all stumbling in this thing. We're first graders. But we have a vision. That God has given us something that's unbelievable. And that can be stirred up and instructed and encouraged in worship and preaching and prayer and music. But in a small group, as we hear each other share our journeys... We can enter that journey and stir up what's real. Father, so many loose ends because I don't know how to tie them up. If I had two more hours, I'd just confuse things more. And you know that not too many days go by when I don't get pretty disillusioned and wonder if anybody ever really changes, including me. I wish for more right-handed power and here your son went to the cross like a lamb Looked so completely weak and powerless, and yet in the powerlessness, he defeated the enemy. And then we made the assumption that after your son died and rose again and ascended, that the Spirit came, and now it was time for all the big power that was going to be right-handed and things were going to change all over the place. God, help us to say that, help us to see that the agenda still is that deep work of the Spirit in our souls that, from our perspective, can be frustratingly slow. Give us the patience to journey with each other through all the ups and downs. and um, Keep us focused that your word is true even when our experience doesn't confirm a bit of it. Give us the faith to believe your word when experience denies it. And, and Father, help us, to, help us to see that um, good enough Christianity just is not what you've called us to. You've called us to radical otherworldly Christianity and that I could actually become a little more like you, Lord Jesus, in the next year. And I could actually move into somebody else's life so they could become a little more like you. Father, a lot of people sitting here are feeling so defeated. Oh, God. Help us to realize that as priests, we never have to tear our robes. We never have to plead final defeat. Give us the joy of pleading temporary defeat into brokenness so your power can be made manifest. God, take this incredible church and protect it, preserve it. May this be a church that more and more becomes that counterculture that people look and say, I don't quite know how you do that. We can pull off a lot of things, but you're, you're relating in ways that I can't. What's your secret? May this be an incredible light on a hill 
for your glory. Thank you for the privilege of addressing this group. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.